Welcome back to another episode of the Max Term Podcast. Kyle Stitch here alongside James Finch. And today's topic is going to be kind of cap management, contract management from a team player perspective, when teams should take advantage, kind of how players' careers progress as far as their earning potential, and everything in between. And we're going to kind of see where this conversation takes us, give some examples, stuff like that. If you have any questions on anything we kind of talk about, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or threads um, at AFP Analytics, AFP Analytics on both really. Um, Our personal accounts can be found there as well. Appreciate you listening to this episode, subscribing to this podcast, Max Term Pod on all major platforms that you might consume your podcasts on. We're also available on YouTube. And uh, we have a Twitter account set up for this as well. And uh, any ads or any products, companies you might uh, hear affiliated with this podcast are not necessarily products that James or I are working with or endorsing. Um, And with that, let's talk a little bit about kind of, let's start high level, where how players kind of their contract situation throughout their career, starting from when they get drafted to hopefully a, through a long career to when they retire. Yeah, so just to kind of, I guess, give the contract landscape of really what an average player is looking at. They get drafted, or maybe they're undrafted, signing an entry-level contract. Now, it can be a little different depending on age, but in general, let's say a player gets drafted, he signs his contract right away. It's going to be a three-year contract. Um, There's a pretty sizable amount that we usually see initially. That is an amount that is paid to the player in the NHL. If he ends up in the AHL, there's usually a different amount, um, much lower. So once that entry-level contract is up after those three years, assuming it doesn't slide, um, which is possible depending on um, where that player is playing um, after being drafted, he will become an RFA at the end of that entry-level contract, the ELC. Now, an RFA, uh, we've talked about this in prior uh, episodes, Restricted free agent. So the team has the right to this player. He usually can interact with other teams, have conversations with other teams, um, even is allowed to sign an offer sheet. It doesn't happen often, but he's able to sign a contract technically with a different team, and uh, his his uh, first team there is able to match that contract. Uh, From those early RFA years, uh, the player usually will eventually earn the right to be able to go to arbitration. Um, To hear a bit more about arbitration, uh, we've got an episode out that was released a couple weeks ago um, that goes much more in-depth on the arbitration process for the NHL. Um, So to to hear more about arbitration, definitely go check that out. Um, but so arbitration's the later years of the RFA status, and eventually the player will then become a UFA, an unrestricted free agent, which then allows the player to 
interact with all teams, sign a contract with whoever he wants to sign a contract with, and his original team can do nothing about it. For those UFA uh, statuses to hit, uh, players are generally going to be 27 years old. There are some exceptions to that if a player starts accruing service time real early in his career at a younger age, 18, 19, it's possible that he might uh, get UFA status a year or two earlier in the 25, 26 range. But in general, around age 27 is where the player will become a UFA. The other exception would be uh, an RFA eligible player not getting the qualifying offer from his team and that would make him an unrestricted free agent. That could happen um, as early as right after the entry level contract. Um, as far as some other key points to touch on contract wise, the uh, 35 plus? Yeah, so generally players will play out um, most of their career in that kind of timeline that we just laid out, starting entry-level, RFA, RFA with arbitration rights, unrestricted free agency, and then once the player turns 35, things kind of come full circle for them. So there are only two points with a couple very specific exceptions in a player's career that they can put in what are known as performance bonuses in their contract. Basically, they get paid more money if they hit certain milestones. On that entry-level contract, right when they come into the league, so higher picks are going to get more bonuses kind of included in that contract. And they're very, they're very specific as to what type of but bonuses there in the collective bargaining agreement, the agreement between player, the Players Association and the league. There's very specific kind of criteria for what can be set, and players that are picked higher can will generally add more kind of incentives to those contracts. And then the other time where there's a few less restrictions, it's a little less rigid as to what those bonuses can entail. There's still some specific some rules that you can't tie things to, but it's once a player turns 35. So basically there is an acknowledgement that once the players start to get toward the end of their career, their career, their performance declines. And so teams were hesitant to pay big money. So kind of the compromise was saying, hey, if you still perform well, we'll pay you more. We're fine with that, but we want to see that performance. So that's kind of what put performance bonuses back on the table for players that are 35 years or older. And again, they can be tied to like games played, points, stuff like that would generally be where where players will earn more of their incentive. And the other important thing with 35 plus contracts is there is an automatic no movement, no trade clause, and they also cannot be bought out. So once a team signs this contract, like Pittsburgh did with Jeff Carter a couple years ago, they're stuck with it unless they can trade it and the player agrees to that trade for the duration of that contract. So bonuses can either count, can either be applied to the season that just ended. So obviously you have to go through an entire season to see if the player hit a threshold. 
Like, if they have to score 20 goals, you got to wait till all games are played to see, did they hit those 20 goals? Even if they hit early in the season, it's still, it's still at the end of the season when it is all figured out. So the bonuses can be applied kind of retroactively if you did not use long-term injured reserve into the previous season, the season that just ended, provided you have enough space. So let's say you have players that earned a million dollars in bonuses. As long as you had a million dollars of cap space available at the end of the year, you can just kind of say, okay, the bonuses were are acknowledged there. Otherwise, the bonuses are going to roll over into the next season, which is where the Boston Bruins this year have gotten into some trouble. Yeah, so in a way, it can be valuable to kind of take advantage of these, the way the bonuses work. And it's kind of what Boston did as far as being able to fit different players like Bergeron and Krejci into uh, their their lineup this past season. That being said, because those bonuses weren't able to be applied to this past year, they're going on the upcoming year. Um, and that's kind of caused a little bit of cap issues for the team. So while it, it could be beneficial to take advantage of the way that works, um, initially uh, there's always a cost to it, and Boston's kind of dealing with that right now. So I, I think this kind of leads naturally into a discussion of contenders versus non-contenders. So contenders, if you have a chance to win the Stanley Cup, you're going to try and do it. If you're not one of those teams, the smart thing to do is, we'll use a maybe a dirty word here, is to tank. The smart thing to do is to get as you know high to high in the draft as you possibly can. Yeah, I think, uh, obviously, so this this past year, this past draft, Connor Bedard is who everyone was tanking for, basically, and Chicago is not necessarily going out there looking to hand 35-plus um, players huge bonuses on their contracts. Um, they don't really need to be doing that. Boston's in the situation where they are really pushing for a cup. Um, there's different ways that they can kind of get around the hard cap of um, the 82.5, now going to be 83.5, um, as a contender wanting to maximize uh, the essentially, I guess, purchase power of an NHL team. Yeah, so Chicago didn't have to give bonuses. They just had to overpay for, you know, the Corey Perrys and Nick Felinos of the world. and So they just gave it straight up. They didn't even worry about those bonuses. I don't even want to say they had to because I'm not even really sure why they would pay that much for those guys. I mean, I, I guess there's some value maybe to veteran leadership, but at some point you'd think maybe at – Two and a half, three million. You'd kind of say, "All right, we'll go somewhere else." But no, they they went all the way up to four million. Yeah, the, those are those are killing our contract projections a little bit. Our our air there, but that that's for a future that's for a future episode where where we'll uh, curse Chicago again for those contracts. But so Chicago, not a contender. 
and plenty of other teams should consider themselves as not contenders. The The cold reality of the league is, it. so yes, we saw the Florida Panthers make a Stanley a run to the Stanley Cup Finals. They also won the President's Trophy just the year before, so it's not like they're a team devoid of talent or ability. The reality is, is a lot of times when you sneak into the playoffs, yes, anything can happen in hockey, yes, a hot goalie, but if you're sneaking into the playoffs, that's that's great. It's fun for your fans, but for your long-term success, unless you're being propelled by an incredibly young roster, it's not doing you a whole lot of good. You kind of turn into the Minnesota Wild of recent years. Go back a couple more years, the Detroit Red Wings. I know they had a streak that they had, that they wanted to keep alive, but at the tail end of that streak, they really made some moves that have that they still really haven't recovered from. Yeah, there's there's some teams that really try to uh, put a, a quality team on the ice, and they're never really good enough to be a top contender and never really bad enough to eventually become the top contender. And I, I guess Nashville got close to a cup once, but they're kind of another one of those teams that just kind of gets stuck in the middle. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of, I think, beneficial to acknowledge where your team is at and, some tougher years might actually be beneficial in the long term. I kind of have a philosophy personally that give give it a run for maybe three years with your core. Whatever you identify as your core group of players, give it a three, four, maybe five-year run with some tweaks coming in those last couple of years with your core group of players. So the Toronto Maple Leafs right now, I think are a great example. I think they've kind of hit the end of the runway and they really haven't taken off. Might be time to kind of put the brakes on, go back to the, go back to the terminal, keeping with this airplane reference here and maybe reassess what's going on here. Yeah. I think that this is where we can really dive into cap management and, an example so Toronto they're at the point now where their core is no longer young cheap players they're, they're still pretty young but they aren't cheap anymore and needing to re-sign all these guys it, it changes um, it basically changes your salary cap structure as a team where you're very top heavy and for trying to build a contender that's going to go deep into the playoffs, we've seen time and time again that the teams that end up winning are able to put out not just one or two really good lines, but three or four really good lines. They've got a lot of defensive depth. Um, It's tougher to field that complete team when you have, let's say, three, four, five really top core guys, and all of a sudden you're paying them all eight, nine, or more million dollars. Yeah, when Toronto kind of started um, on their path, what they did made a ton of sense. They had an Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, Willie Nylander on their entry-level contracts where 
that's the cheapest that they're ever going to be in their career, at least for a top-line player. So you have you want to take advantage of that. Well, Toronto did take advantage of that and use cap space to go out and sign a John Tavares, who was in the prime of his career at that point. Again, makes perfect sense at the time. The pro the minute they kind of did that though, they opened their window and they needed to kind of get through, kind of get up the to the top of the hill in that time, and making it out of the first round once, and now be and now staring down a decline John Tavares, a flat cap, which they could not have necessarily predicted was going to happen. So that that kind of contributes to their struggles at a, to an extent. But the declining John Tavares, everyone knew the back end of that contract was going to be an issue. And now we're approaching Willie Nylander is going to need 9 to $10 million. I know Toronto fans are going to scoff at that, but that's what he's going to come in at, maybe even a little bit more. Mitch Marner's under contract for a couple more years. Austin Matthews is going to need a raise. So your precious cap space is basically gone. And the kind of push and pull is, again, the way to get good performance at a cheaper level is with players on entry-level contracts, maybe early and restricted free agency. Well, in order to acquire players to kind of push yourself to the top of that hill, you trade a lot of those assets that that are that are either going to that are going to become those young cheap players. Yeah, so we've kind of seen Toronto hasn't really had a top guy come up. I guess Matthew Nyes is there now, and that's probably the really the one most recent example of a player who is going to play pretty well for them on their entry-level contract uh, a little bit higher in the lineup, I guess. But trading all those picks to acquire the rentals at the deadline to kind of give that final push, it, it limits what is coming. And then really every year it's a top-heavy team and it's in need of kind of a, a patch here and there on the top line or a, you need a defenseman because someone got hurt and that's where you're, we'll call them controllable assets, even though they're picks and not players yet. It's it's a controllable asset. They're going out the door. And, it, and at times it is, it is even prospects, like guys yeah. that are in the AHL a year, potentially a year or two away from being those middle six players on your NHL roster. But that's what other teams want for their kind of valuable veterans. So again, if you're going for it, great. It's, it's, you want to take advantage of those windows, but you need results. And I mean, Toronto was also fortunate to be able to find kind of a diamond in the rough and Michael Bunting that was able to slot in on their top line at a, so he wasn't full on like, cost controlled he was technically an unrestricted free agent but he was one of those unique scenarios where he wasn't qualified hit the open market and didn't have hasn't hadn't really proven a lot so Toronto was able to get him cheap for a couple years and that's really that was really their entry-level player for a couple years yeah that's kind of what the cap strap teams are really needing to do as they go into free agency and they're they're looking for that diamond in the rough and 
it's always nice when you can find it or find that player, but when that's kind of what you have to lean on to really improve your team, it's not the greatest situation. And I guess this year they were able to go spend a little bit of money, um, Bertuzzi, Max Domi. Um, that's $8.5 combined, those two. So that's good. That'll help a little bit. But they, they've just kind of been stuck in this uh, same process of we don't have a ton of money to spend because our top players are taking up a ton of our payroll. How can we maybe find a diamond in the rough, I guess? And it's just, it hasn't been quite enough. And like you said, there's a window open with core players, and it feels like they're kind of at the end of that, especially because Nylander needs a new deal. Matthews is going to need a new deal. And the prices are all going up. Yeah, ex exactly. Like they've rolled this core out enough times. Yes, this is this is probably the most significant week with Bertuzzi and Domi coming in. But they still need to find approximately two million dollars in cap space. So yeah, I think there's some level of a like juggling between sending guys down, playing short a night or two, using emergency recalls that they could do. But that's not an ideal situation to basically go the entire season doing that. And Matthew Knives, who you're counting on to probably be in your top six, it's going to be one of those guys that you're going to, that right now, they're going to voluntarily have to send down to the AHL just to have the cap space to be compliant. Yeah, and j just to be clear, so this is assuming uh, Jake Muzzin and Matt Murray are going to be on LTIR, uh, long-term injured reserve. And something I kind of want to bring up, and I, I don't want to go completely full stats analytics guy and not acknowledge that, okay, some players might bring value as a locker room presence, just as a teammate. So that, that's there. But I, I just I look at the recent signing of Ryan Reeves at one point three five million, and I, I just kind of question like you're putting yourself in this cap situation with a signing like that because let's say they don't have Ryan Reeves and then it's like oh okay we need one player uh, Dylan Gambrell maybe he needs to be down um, in the AHL and then you're good you're all set so. A little questionable as far as cap management in my opinion to sign a player like Ryan Reeves because uh, I, I think what we're ultimately leading to with this conversation is they still kind of need to make a move yeah yeah they haven't solved their cap situation and I, I was playing around the other day with this and yeah it's if they don't have Ryan Reeves this is a very as you said Dylan Gambrell is maybe an AHL player anyways. Like, you put him on waivers, send him down, him and Reeves not on the roster, well, there's your space and you're good to go and you have a fine roster. Now, I don't see a path to them being cap compliant without trading a TJ Brody, a Willie Nylander, which might be the, 
the idea anyways because, again, I think it's time to shake up that core. I might lean towards a Mitch Marner being the one out just for, I think, value-wise and kind of how much cap space he'll free up. But it seems like Brody Nylander are going to be the odd guys out. Or you have to, again, do this juggling act where you're sending Matthew Knives, Holmberg down, um, Gambrell, maybe trying to sneak a defenseman at Connor Timmons through waivers up and down. Don't have any leeway with your goalies now. Like, I, I don't know. I guess I just don't know how Toronto doesn't end up trading one of these core pieces. One, to retool their roster, but two, to really get themselves out of this cap situation, give them a little more flexibility down the road. Yeah, I think uh, another part of the roster to talk about uh, here with Toronto, if you want to talk about, at least at this point in their careers, just polar opposites, TJ Brody and John Klingberg. Brody was, and Toronto fans aren't necessarily happy with Brody, didn't have a great playoff, but regular season he was one of the best defensive defensemen in the NHL. John Klingberg, who is a new addition, they signed him for $4.15 million, doesn't really know how to play defense which is interesting because he's a defenseman. He'll provide a little bit of value offensively, I think, and I'm sure he might even get some power play time looking at their roster, but that would be interesting cap management, in my opinion, if they brought in John Klingberg, and then as a result, pretty much, they need to move out someone like TJ Brody. It's probably not as... Well, no, I'm, I'm going to say, at least for me, I think it's just as ridiculous as signing Ryan Reeves. Um, it's, at some point, self-induced, the cap problems. And I, I think that's kind of where they're at right now, is they've put themselves in a position where they're going to need to move someone who's ultimately an important piece of this team. So I think kind of the idea of like the self-induced cap problems, I think that's kind of a good transition to kind of look back broader across the league. And there's kind of two ways teams get themselves into cap trouble and kind of start hit, going towards that ceiling and the salary cap. Toronto's kind of in the middle here, but really the ways you, you end up pushing against that Salary cap ceiling, the amount you really can't exceed with some, you know, exceptions, loopholes, is you sign some bad players to bad contracts, give them more than they're worth, and you do that for multiple players. Or you just have so many good players that you're paying fair value that eventually you have to start making tough decisions. So Toronto, I think, is really in between because... The Nylander contract's fantastic. The Marner deal's fine. The Matthews deal's good to fine. But then, as you said, John Klingberg, they chose to do that. Ryan Reeves, they chose to do that. Like, I think Domi and Bertuzzi are 
are probably needed additions, but those were decisions that they chose to make. They'll probably be fine for the year. They chose to trade for Jake McCabe, who's, again, not maybe not the problem, but there's just more money. They chose to bring in Matt Murray. Again, he probably out for the year on long-term injury reserves, so his cap hit is kind of inconsequential. But they they made some decisions, but also had some guys on good good players on fair contracts. And I guess John Tavares at this point is also in the they chose that, but that was a while ago. So I think a team that's kind of on the poor contract side, the Vancouver Canucks have kind of voluntarily put themselves in cap trouble. Um, we've had a lot of people engaging with us at, at AFP Analytics talking about Elias Pettersson's next contract. And one one fantastic point that was made is, had the Canucks not basically put themselves in a bad cap situation a couple years ago, Elias Pettersson's probably under contract for five more years at like $8.5 million. Yeah, it's as opposed to so we had a projection over ten million this year for his new contract on an extension. Uh, he's got one year left at seven point three five. That was a shorter deal. It was a bridge deal to get to a long term contract. And then, like you said, they weren't able to do that long term contract in the past because they've put themselves in a tough spot. They've spent eight million on JT Miller. Um Miller was probably a little bit before they were they had to pay Patterson, but Yes. Well you have Tyler Myers, they had to buy out uh Oliver Ekman Larson. There's just a lot of questionable decisions. Um, as far as where they're using their cap space, or I guess now lack thereof, um, who was, they had someone, Michael Furland, I think, who had a decent season before they signed him, but it it was kind of one of those moves that, well, why would you make that move if it's going to keep you from locking up your franchise star? Um, they just don't have a lot of good quality for the amount of money that they're paying players. And it's this kind of becomes a little bit of a discussion of how do you want to handle keeping your young players as far as what kind of contracts are you looking to sign them to and when? Yeah, and this has been my uh, personal blight against NHL teams for uh, five years now. 2018, yeah, five years now. Um, I've been banging on the don't give bridge contracts to young players if you're an NHL team. Um, I've... I don't know, I tweet this article out probably once, twice a year about how giving bridge contracts almost always is going to bite, come back to bite the team. Um, the I guess the, fl- the flat salary cap the past couple of years maybe makes it justifiable to do a bridge 
deal to an extent. I'm still not going to sit here and then full-on endorse it. Made it a little bit more justifiable. But this offseason, if you're a team with a player who just finished their entry-level contract, or so like in Anaheim with Trevor Zegras, for example, I think he's probably one of the better examples. Montreal actually already did this with Cole Caulfield you really should do a long-term contract this year because the cap is as low. The cap's not getting lower than it is right now. Next year, it's going to go up probably about three, four million dollars. And that's probably going to be the increase for each subsequent year in that ballpark. So we, we kind of project our contracts based on cap hit percentage. So, very easy math here. If each year the player's cap hit, like, value is the same cap hit percentage, as the cap starts going up and up and up, the salary cap hit just goes up. And most times young players are in the prime of their career coming off their entry-level contract. So they just put up even better numbers so the kind of floor is the exact same cap hit percentage, which is a higher salary cap hit in future years. Oh, but they've gotten better. So now that cap hit percentage is going up under a higher cap. And that just means you're spending two, three, four million dollars more per year that if you had just locked them up a couple of years ago, you would avoid for another five years. Yeah, I think it's, so using Pedersen as the example, so they signed him to a bridge deal, had an AAV of 7.35. They could have gone long-term, let's say even at 9. Well, we're projecting, I, I believe it was about almost 10.5. That's not an insignificant amount of money, the, the difference in that, let's say... So nine and ten and a half. So we're looking at one and a half million. When you're a team that is spending up to the cap, you need that one and a half million. Um, so th that's kind of where, if you're able to go long term with your younger star players and really even mid level players, it's probably better to do that in most cases. The uh, one scenario, and I, I still agree with you that it is better to go long-term. Um, looking at a team like the Tampa Bay Lightning, who have just pretty much up until now have been producing young player after young player, they've kind of had to do bridge deals from time to time on their uh, defense. Cernak got a bridge deal before his long-term deal. Uh, Sergachev did too. It's different when you're a Stanley Cup favorite for five, half, I'll say half a decade. And then when you're the Vancouver Canucks, who are a, at best in the past five years a borderline playoff team and at times an obvious non-playoff team, you shouldn't be spending yourself into a cap situation where you can't give your young star a long-term contract and you have to bridge him. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is kind of where, where we started the episode is you need to be realistic with where you are in your timeline. 
Tampa Bay for half a decade plus has been a clear Stanley Cup contender. So they've put their chips more towards the middle of the table. They've went for it. And that's completely justifiable, even if there is some long, some kind of pain down the road. Canucks are definitely not a contender. And so I think, I think looking at kind of teams who have smartly managed their cap as well, I, I like a, to an extent what the Florida Panthers did some years ago where they were able to lock, lock up Sasha Barkov to a long year, long-term contract, Aaron Ekblad, Huberdeau, Uyghur, however many years ago. And then, of course, those guys were traded for Matthew Kachuk, who they subsequently locked up immediately to a long-term contract. But I think the, the team that's already capitalized on this is the Colorado Avalanche. Nathan McKinnon they went along with, Mikko Rantanen, um, Gabe Landeskog, Cal McCarr, Sam Gerrard, Devon Tays. Like, that's their core rate there. And they were able to, like, some of those guys were the best contracts in hockey for a couple of years. Yeah, so... I remember the offseason Taves was traded from the Islanders to Colorado, and he really had a breakout season with the Islanders there, but we were thinking, like, this guy should be getting paid. Ended up signing a four-year contract for 4.1 annually. He continued to be one of the top defensemen in hockey at a very low cap hit. Um, Cal McCarr, let's use him as an example, He's making $9 million right now, which is pretty significant. It's up at the top of the market. When he's making $9 million, let's say, for the 2025-26 season, when we know the cap is going to be, I'll say, roughly $8 million higher, that nine uh, average annual value on his contract, that $9 million, it's going to start to look like a good deal for the Avalanche. Um, Another example with the Avalanche that you brought up was Nathan McKinnon. He's going on to his big long-term deal now that was, uh, it's going to be paying him 12.6. But when he was coming off his entry level, they were able to lock him up long-term at 6.3 million. They won the Stanley Cup. Nathan McKinnon, a 100-point player, making $6.3 million. That's exactly what we're talking about as far as the value of locking up your younger players long-term. Yeah, so Colorado, I think, is the team that's capitalized. And the team now that seems to be trying to do this, seems to be on the rise, is the Buffalo Sabres. They've, I mean, some people were questioning what they were doing but they now have their f- probably first two line centers and a solid top four defenseman locked up for the next seven years for under $20 million. Tage Thompson and Dylan Cousins, both around $7 million. Then Matias Samuelson, they signed before he even scored an NHL goal. They signed him to a seven-year contract as well. For a cap hit just over $4 million that, again, as the cap rises in a couple years and he probably continues to be a kind of rock in their top four, 
that's going to be an incredible contract. Yeah, I, I kind of remember when that one was signed. Um, people outside of Buffalo, even reporters, NHL reporters, um, kind of were reacting like, what's going on in Buffalo? Why did they just do that? People within Buffalo who kind of knew what Samuelson was becoming said, wow, that makes a lot of sense, and that's going to look real good. There's quotes from Rasmus Dahlin saying how he loves playing with Samuelson. He's a great, calming presence. To have him at four, we'll call it 4.3. It's just under 4.3 million a year. For the foreseeable future, that's amazing. To have your top two centers, Tage Thompson and Dylan Cousins, both locked up for about 7.1. We're already seeing players who are maybe not quite as good as them signing for bigger deals, and those two just signed their contracts. Buffalo is kind of doing what we think teams should be doing, signing their young players long-term um, to avoid then in, let's say, a few years if they were going to sign a bridge deal, to, to avoid all of a sudden having that much higher cap hit. I think we're going to see with Buffalo, they're going to need to sign an extension with Owen Power. So first overall pick, he's probably going to get paid pretty well, and maybe right away we might be saying, whoa, that, that's a lot of money. Let's say he gets seven and a half, eight million over a seven or eight year contract. It might be a lot right now. Two, three years down the road, Buffalo is going to be really happy that they signed Owen Power to that contract and not, let's say, a, a two or three year deal at $5 million because Owen Power might end up turning into that $10 million, $11 million defenseman three, four years from now. Yeah, I mean, Buffalo... I'm not going to say lucked into Alex Tuck as a player. I think I think they identified him as as someone who would be a tremendous centerpiece to bring back in the Jack Eichel trade. But they did luck into his contract a little bit as well. Like, I think that's a very under the radar one of the better contracts in hockey right now. Like Alex Tuck is is an elite top line wing, winger right now in his career, and he's in his cap hit is less than five million dollars a year. We just saw. Like uh, Tyler Bertuzzi this offseason get signed for a higher cap hit, and I I take Alex Tuck as a playmaker more than out um, than Bertuzzi there, and oh he's under Tuck's gonna be with Buffalo for a while as well, so so that's huge, and I think the other important thing to kind of say with like doing these long term contracts is you also know what your cap situation is going to look like for more than just two, three years down the road. You can really shape how much space you have, which is important. So again, we talked earlier about, oh, you need to, the best way to get high-level performance at a low price is players on entry-level contracts. So sticking with Buffalo, their forward prospect pool 
is loaded. It might be the best in the league. I'm not going to say their overall prospect pool is the best in the league, but their group of forwards in the pipeline, there's going to be very few teams, I mean, taking out like Chicago is Connor Bedard going to play this year, but depth-wise and talent-wise, they're, they're right up there. So the idea now is if Buffalo can, you know, figure out where they're going to need to maybe ha- be a little tighter to the cap. Oh, now they don't call up that Zach Benson or Isaac Rosine for another year so they can, you know, push that entry-level contract one more year down the road. Could be why you don't see them bring up a Yeri Kulik who just who was one of the top AHL rookies this year. He might not play might play a couple games in Buffalo, but they might keep it so he plays under the 10-game threshold to keep his entry-level contract from sliding and basically uh, being able to pay him a cheaper amount for the uh, one more year because they might forecast out their salary cap and be like, oh, in four years we might be a little bit tight, so let's make sure we have Yeri Cooley cheap. Yeah, so um, I, to kind of tie all of this together, a, a example of them not going long-term with a young player was Rasmus Dahlin. They signed him to a three-year, so a bridge deal, $6 million. Issue with that is now they're probably going to need to sign him to a max term contract, eight, eight years, and it's probably going to end up being around $10 million is what's believed to be. Uh, coming his way. Buffalo can afford that right now. It's not going to put them in a tough cap situation. But if they would have been able to sign him to maybe an 8 by 8 years ago, well, then that's going to save them $2 million for the next bunch of years. And that's not what happened. So they're probably going to end up needing to pay Dowling around $10 million and where the importance of those younger players. So right now on the roster, there's Jack Quinn, uh, JJ Paterica. They're going to need new deals in a couple of years, but you, you talk about kind of how you want to decide bringing players up, possibly being able to extend some ELCs. Um, it could be very beneficial now that you're going to be paying some players higher value like Dahlin to have the Zach Bensons, the Yuri Kulik's, the uh, Rosines, to have them on those entry-level deals because this provides a lot of cheap depth so they can bring those players up while your team's playing very, very well. That's ideal to connect back to what we talked about earlier, Toronto Maple Leafs. They don't have that prospect pool. So they don't really have those players to bring up right now that are on cheap deals that can provide a high value. That's kind of just the risk you take when you build your roster a certain way. That's really why we are ultimately saying sign your young players, your top young players, to long-term contracts. It's going to put you in the best possible situation. So we're gushing over kind of what Buffalo's done the past year, two years or so. 
I don't think it's a coincidence that they've uh, kind of beefed up their analytics department, brought in some really smart, respectable people to there. But just a couple years ago, well, we're a few, we're a few more years removed at this point, they had a decision to make on Sam Reinhardt. And they went multiple times with short-term contracts. Again, when I when I kind of came up with this concept of stop signing players to bridge deals, Reinhardt was one of the players I was pounding the table, signed to a long-term contract. I contrasted Reinhardt and Willie Nylander. Well, Nylander and Toronto went long, and that's worked out fantastic for them. Buffalo went short and then short and then short with Sam Reinhardt and got to a point where he really had the leverage in the situation and said, I'm not, at this point, I'm not signing a long-term contract and basically forced the Sabres to trade him because they weren't a contender. They needed to get, you know, recoup some level of assets for him. And they ended up trading him to the Florida Panthers. So the deals worked out really well for both teams. Buffalo was able to get their goalie of the future in Devin Levi as well as the first-round pick that they took Gary Kulik with, who we've been gushing over as well. But if Buffalo had signed Sam Reinhart to a long-term contract initially, they might still have him. And he's he's a player that they've kind of been searching for any like for the past year, two years. He would be great in their lineup right now. Absolutely. It's... Buffalo kind of provide a real reason to talk about them as much as we are is Buffalo is kind of um, able to provide examples of they've done some things really well. There's also some decisions that they've made that aren't so great, and Reinhardt's kind of one of those. I think another positive of having your younger guys locked up long-term, and you kind of mentioned being able to almost forecast your cap space years down the road is if you kind of identify a weak spot on your roster, you're then able to maybe go out into free agency or make a trade for a player already under contract. Um, But let's say free agency, you need to go sign a defenseman. Well, okay, now we can fit Connor Clifton at the 3.3, I think it was, that he signed for. He can fit right in. It it works. Um, that 3.3 million might not really work on a team like, let's say, Vancouver, who is right up to the cap. They still need to sign their franchise star long-term. Um, so so that, that's kind of a benefit, being able to go to free agency. That said, locking up your young guys early in their career is kind of nice. I I think this is a good spot to maybe discuss the age curve a little bit as far as going out and needing to sign a player who is, let's say, UFA eligible at 27-28, needing to hand that guy an eight-year deal then as opposed to if you could have just given him the eight-year deal at, let's say, 24 years old. Yeah, so all, all athletes basically follow some level of 
it's termed an age curve, but it's kind of their performance trajectory for their years. And it's basically a hill. And the peak of the hill is, for hockey players, 23, 24, 25, 26, depending on position and other factors. Well, those are the years that our uh, teams have the ability to have cost control over those players. Um, Entry-level contracts, restricted free agency, arbitration. The team, But the team's able to dictate terms a little bit more. Well, at age 26, 27, 28, when players are eligible to go into the open market and get paid fair value contracts, or open market value contracts, I should maybe say there, is, is when they're, they're still good, they're still really good, but they're, on the, they're, on the, they're walking down the hill, if you will. They're on the downside of their career. And so that's all, that's all fine for a couple years. Again, going back to the Maple Leafs example, John Tavares, it was pretty well, it was pretty known that he would have three to five really, really solid years because of his age. And then those last couple years of that contract weren't going to look so good. Well, that's exactly what's kind of played out. So if you, if you've kind of set your, you know, set your roster properly where you've got your core taken care of, cost controlled, they're ascending together, kind of hitting the top of the hill in the same time frame, you have space to make moves, you have space to dip into, as you were saying, with like unrestricted free agency, you have that hole in your roster that you need that one guy, you're a little bit more okay overpaying him at that point in time opposed to if you're again Vancouver or someone like that you don't have the ability to do that because you haven't controlled your contracts well so the ideal scenario to building your roster is homegrown talent through um when they're in their prime 24 through 27 and then probably having them locked up early taking them to about age 30, which coincidentally, if you do an entry-level contract, then like a seven, eight-year deal, that takes most players right around age 30, which is kind of the point where you start to get a little hesitant to have them. And then, then you can supplement as needed once you have your core in place at a, co- at a controlled cost. I generally would consider a core... First line center, top pair, kind of all situations defenseman, a goalie to an extent, but I'm not willing to pay $10 million for a goalie. And then I'm looking for probably a, little, a couple wingers or another center or something to kind of balance out my lineup. So this isn't a perfect fit into what you just laid out, but Steven Stamkos, Victor Hedman, Nikita Kucherov, Andre Vasilevsky is the goalie. He's getting paid a lot, but uh, a, a lot as in nine and a half million. So it pretty much hits that ten million. That said, Tampa Bay is kind of a good example of homegrown talent, locked them up long term, and year to year they kind of they'll dip into free agency or maybe trade for someone. 
a mid-level player, lower-level player, doesn't break the bank, but they're able to fit in that, uh, let's say this year, Connor Sheary at $2 million. Um, they traded for and then signed uh, Nicholas Paul long-term. As the roster changes, some other mid-level guys might they might be able to keep or they lose them. Um, they're still able to reach into free agency to try and patch their roster. Now, what we've kind of talked about they've in past episodes, Tampa Bay might be close to the end of their window, but what, what I was kind of just talking about is what they've done for the past half decade plus. Um, and it, it's kind of a good example of if you lock your core up long term, you'll be able to push for a Stanley Cup by reaching out into free agency to find your version of a, let's say, to tie back to Buffalo, to find your Connor Clifton, just that guy to kind of piece into the blue line that is kind of the way you want to go about building your team. Lock up your core long term at a young age. Yeah, I think Tampa's Tampa's someone that probably earlier should have been mentioned. Don't forget, I think I think kind of the microcosm of this entire Tampa roster is Alex Kalorn, who just left this offseason as an unrestricted free agent, but he was there on a long term contract that he signed young. He was part of that core for that that kind of Stanley Cup window. And now that they've kind of hit the end of that he's he's moved on he got a big payday to go elsewhere and I think he's probably the perfect kind of example here I think the one knock that I'll have on Tampa Bay your point like oh they're in their window they might have to do bridge deals absolutely kind of as they moved into their Stanley Cup window I look at Nikita Kucherov though he was signed to a bridge deal early enough where Tampa would have had space to go long term. Yes. And if so hypothetically, if Tampa had another one to two million of cap space every single year because they had done a long term deal with Kucherov off the bat, they would I mean they, they won what, two Stanley Cubs went to a third, so how bad did they do? But, like... Yeah. Well, yes, you you could be looking at keeping Kalorn instead of having Connor Sheary and uh, Tanner Janot or Nick Paul. Um, But, yeah, I I guess that, that is a good example of they could have bought themselves a little bit more space if they had gone long-term with Kucherov a little bit earlier. Um, I, I think the other example with Kalorn is just last year, Andre Palat as well. They had both of those guys long-term, early, on good deals, and contracts expired, and it's just time team moves on. Um Yanni Gore to an extent as well. I know he was taken with by Seattle in the expansion draft, but Tampa kind of was accepting their fate because 
they needed that cap space. If it may, maybe they try and work out something else, had they you know had a little bit more space to work with, again maybe a couple million less on Kucherov gives them that space to maybe work out a side deal and and keep uh, Yanni Gord. Possibly, and uh, like you said, it could have been enough to maybe keep Kalorn um, or a Palat last year. Um, that said, you, we don't know for sure what type of decisions they would make over the course of the years if they did have a little extra money from Kucherov. Do they find a way to keep Ryan McDonough, who I think now we would say it's probably good that they were able to move his contract. If they had decided to keep him with that extra space, well, maybe now they can't move that contract. So it, it, it's tough in hindsight to really say what they would have done. It's more about what they could have done, and that leads us right back to sign your players long-term while they're young so you have that extra space to work with as the cap rises as the years go on. Yeah, and, and it, it's really hard to sit here and criticize the Tampa Bay Lightning with the results they had. Yeah. It's a lot easier to sit here and criticize the Toronto Maple Leafs with the lack of results. And even though they, to an extent, did took similar paths with like their core couple players, but results also do matter. But, uh, yeah, the, the team-building aspect of kind of the NHL, the league and, as a whole, I feel like teams are starting to get smarter. We're seeing a lot less of these bridge contracts. I mean, I don't want to take all the credit, but I mean, I did present this in 2018, and here we are, you know, a few years years removed from that. And the bridge contract, it's not gone, but very few teams are using it with their star players anymore. I, I think really realistically, two years ago, would be where I would kind of say that things took a little bit of a shift um, after kind of the Timo Meyer and Matthew Kachuk situations where the players put themselves in a spot where they were basically able to dictate their situation while still being technically a restricted free agent. So we've, we've really seen teams start to move to the getting smarter especially as it comes to managing their assets. I think we would be kind of remiss to not at least mention the New Jersey Devils as well here, where they were able to lock up a couple uh, Jack Hughes, Nico Heischer, two long-term contracts that both now look fantastic. Hughes, there was questions about like doing that when they did, but man, people, people are now looking at like that was a stroke of genius. I think the one difference with New Jersey a little bit is they also have already dipped into the unrestricted free agent pool with Dougie Hamilton. Still, their their cap management's good. They're in a fine spot. They're one of the teams that might start to get up the cap to the cap, not because they're giving bad contracts, just because they've given a lot of good players good contracts. But they're also, as we said, a team that's just smart going long-term with their young players. I guess Jasper brought a little counter to that, but ultimately that's gotten done, and he's and he's in the fold for a while at this point as well. So I think this is one of the topics that both of us are most passionate about. Um, maybe we'll continue to kind of throw these type of episodes in 
as we as we continue to do this podcast. We appreciate you uh, listening, subscribing to Max Term Pod on any of the platforms that you might consume this on. Uh, please give us a follow if you have any questions, thoughts on Twitter. Um, I actually want the reason kind of I thought of doing this episode is I actually had we had DM um, on the at AFP Analytics account asking a little bit about the Colorado Avalanche situ- situation, keeping like Devon Tays in the fold long term. So that was kind of one of the inspirations and we and really good discussion. Happy to always have those. So feel free at AFP Analytics on Twitter. And on threads, we're going to try and be a little bit more active there as well. Uh, But we appreciate you uh, listening, and we'll talk to you next time.